Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Hope everyone is having a great day. And a special shout out to my good friend, Yoshiko Dart. Love you, Yoshiko. Keep up all the spirit you have for young people with disabilities. You're the best. We love you. And it's amazing I'm talking about her because our award winner today is a young leader who received her award at the American Association of People with Disabilities Gala. She won the very prestigious Hearn Award, and it is certainly a pleasure to have with us today Kathleen Perez, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Joyce. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, Well, let's begin by you telling our listeners how you joined the disability community. Well, first, I just wanted to say that I really admire your show and what you're doing, and I'm so honored to to be part of it, and, and I met you in person, actually, at the AAPD Gala, and you are just a phenomenal force for the disability rights community, so um, thank you for all the work that you do. Well, thank you very much, uh, and it was certainly a pleasure for me to meet you. Yes, likewise. So, let's see, my how I joined the disability community, you know, it's been... And pretty much an evolution my, with both my experience and my identification. And I say an evolution because this goes all the way back to, to my childhood. And I'm 32 now. My sister is 31. Um, and my younger sibling has intellectual disability. So I always identified as a sister and as an advocate uh, I took part in, in her summer camps, and I was there when, when she would come home and cry and say, you know, other students threw pencils at me and were calling me the R word. So, you know, my, my first passion around disability justice really took form, you know, at a very young age and as an identification as a sibling. But this also evolves because in my childhood, I experienced symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder and major depression and social anxiety and general anxiety from a very, very young age, from as far back as I can remember. But I didn't necessarily identify with the disability community. It was something that was, that was hidden, that I kept hidden from everyone, including my parents. Um, you know, and I was always, you know, told, you know, you're you're a great student, you're getting perfect grades, you're on all these sports, and outwardly, I was able to pass, that I was completely fine, when on the inside, I was having a lot of issues. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm luckier, I think, than than many high schoolers and teens, and especially when you hear statistics about, you know, one in five Latinas um, commit suicide. Uh, what? Wait, wait. Repeat that again? Yeah, I, I don't have the exact number, but I think it's one in five or a little bit less than 20% um, of Latinas, teenagers, um, attempt suicide. Wow, that's and terrible. It is. It is, yes. And, you know, and I was, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one of, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's because it's stigmatizing and it's very personal, it's hard to say, but... You know, I was one of those teenagers, but luckily I had the support of my parents. And I remember the day I finally came out to my parents and I said, you know what? I've been hiding this. I have a lot of problems. I feel like killing myself. And they were able to plug me into, um, you know, healthcare and, and a psychiatrist. I got a therapist. You know, I got started on meds, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I ended up having... A good story. So that I, I evolved into the psychiatric system, but I still wasn't necessarily identifying with the disability community, you know, capital D, capital C, um, you know, as, as disabled and just having disability pride. That came much later, um, and which 
brings me to my current because I'm a PhD candidate in disability studies at the University of Illinois of Chicago. And it is actually here in my adulthood. Like I said, I'm, you know, 30 some years old now. Um, and just over the past few years, have I really found community with other people with psychiatric disability, mental disabilities, um, and other people with disabilities. And I feel now that I fit into the disability community, not only as a sibling, not only as an advocate, which I've been my entire life, but also now I have an identification as a disabled person. And it feels so good to, to come out and to be part of such a great community and, again, to, to go forward with the project of disability justice as someone who identifies. Right. Yeah, it, and that is amazing that how long was it that you dealt with this before you, you know, told someone? You know, like I said, I, I don't have early memories where I, where I wasn't dealing with, um, like, I, like I say, symptoms because I wasn't formally diagnosed at a young age. But, I mean, I remember being 9, 10 years old, you know, struggling with some pretty serious um, serious symptoms of uh, first it was obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety and then later in my teenage years it just turned into um, a really bad depression but like I said when I was younger it was more you know it was hidden and then it went to this more medical model where I was plugged into psychiatric systems but really the identity as disabled you know having a social and maybe I can I can define that for listeners you know, having a perspective of identity and, uh, and viewing disability as a problem that is um, outside of the individual with the disability. So it's the structural problem of access um, as opposed to, you know, disability being something that's inherently wrong or flawed. Um, I didn't really achieve that identity until more recently. Wow. You know, that is amazing how... How young you remember this from? Yeah, yeah. And how yeah. about your family? Did they recognize this? I mean, did they know what was going on? You know, it's it's interesting, and I know that there's a lot of studies on on siblings of people with with disabilities, and specifically intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, and I think the dynamic is that you know, no parents are born. <laughs> you know, with the, with the rule book or guidelines on how to raise someone with a disability. And, you know, when my sister was born in 1985, you know, she didn't even receive a diagnosis until she went to school and she got the MR, you know, formally, in quotes, mental retardation, which today, you know, we call intellectual disability. You know, they didn't have the rule book. So, you know, a lot of attention was focused on my sister and, and her needs. And I think I just, I had to grow up, you know, a lot quicker. And like I said, you know, to no fault of my parents, I think externally, because, you know, the nature of mental disability is something that, that you can pass and something that you can hide, which is why sometimes people refer to it as invisible, you know, disability or a non-apparent disability. And I was really good at that. You know, like I said, I, I was a great student. I excelled in sports. I was in theater. I did everything. So it was something that I kept hidden for a really long time. So it wasn't until I, you know, reached out to my parents and, of course, they were so supportive, you know, and, and probably felt a little guilt that they didn't know. But, you know, I don't, I don't blame them at all. And, uh, you know, what else is amazing, how you were able to work around this. Absolutely, yeah. It's, you know, what I say, too, is that, you know, people with mental disabilities, you know, especially, you know, who start from a young age, I think that we, we develop coping mechanisms throughout our life that make us so much more resilient, I think, than, than our, our typical peers. And I definitely think that's true for me. You know, I made it through the, through the extremely hard times of, of high school, which are already complicated, you know, for, for people without mental disabilities. Um, you know, and I went, I went through so many other experiences. I, I went to law school, you know, and that's a whole issue <laughs> with how I dealt with my mental disability. But, you know, through it all, I'm developing coping mechanisms, and I, I developed community supports, and, you know, so I feel like, you know, I, 
that I, I have this toolbox and that I'm able to confront, you know, issues well. Oh, I did you wow, it's phenomenal. And look at you now. That just shows anyone listening to this show right now, don't be ashamed. Don't no. be ashamed. You have to talk yes. about it. You have to talk about it. And just as she said, you are then part of the disability community. Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I know you're going to know this, Strike Zone, uh, but what, what would you share with our listeners? What are some of the issues or barriers that you see people with mental health disabilities are facing today? You know, I think the three main ones are access, the issue of stigma, and then options. So let me just go through those. Access is even having access to psychiatric institutions, but then this gets complicated because there's issues with within psychiatric institutions as well. Um, like I said, I was talking before about the medical model versus social model. Um, so a social model doesn't necessarily mean that I reject psychiatry or that I don't want my meds or that I don't need therapy. Um, but what we do want is we want psychiatric systems that provide options and that, you know, when I'm, when I'm in front of a psychiatrist, I'm in front of a therapist, uh, the, the approaches they use and the terminology that they use to talk about my mental disability is really important. And I think a, a, big, a big part for my community and those who have the privilege even to access psychiatric institution is finding a good fit finding a good fit with a psychiatrist and a therapist, finding a good fit with medication. Anyone who's been on, <laughs> on medications know it's a lot of trial and error. Um, and this can also be something that people burn out about, right? Because, you know, we're already, you know, facing our, our mental disability, which can be a very exhausting in itself. And then you have to navigate these, these systems where you really a lot of times have to advocate for, for the best treatment options. And sometimes people, and I've, I've, you know, throughout my life, I've been, I've, this has happened to me that I kind of just give up and I'm like, you know, I don't even want to take meds because it's getting too complex. Um, the next one is stigma and that, that kind of just speaks for itself. I mean, anyone, anyone knows that, that mental disability, psychiatric disabilities are incredibly stigmatized and, you know, it's just, to me, is one of the biggest barriers that we face in terms of, you know, feeling like we can't come out and when we do come out that people view us differently and less than. And then options, I, I think I talked about options um, with access and, and options is just about, you know, again, with psychiatric systems being open to, to having holistic approaches to, to dealing with mental disability. I have a lot of friends who have mental disability and some who, who don't take medication, but, you know, they do other forms of, of therapy, a lot of regimented exercise, et cetera, and this sort of holistic approach works for them. So, again, you know, the more options, and I think this is general for the disability community in general, the better. Um, you know, it's not one size fits all. We all have different experiences. And, you know, I just wanted to... You know, th those are generally, I think, the three things that people with psychiatric mental disabilities face. But, you know, I also want to talk about, again, my sister. Um, she's such a motivating force in all the work that I do. And, you know, when I think about her, um, she, in addition to having intellectual disability, she also has um, psychiatric disability. And, you know, when we talk about people with mental disabilities, you know, that there are already people on the margins, but I want to talk about people who are in the margins of the margins. And that's people like my sister Cindy who have intellectual disability and psychiatric issues. And when they, when my, someone like my sister uh, confronts a psychiatric institution, it's a lot more difficult for her uh, because her communication isn't as typical as other people. Um, you know, so, so thinking creatively about how to serve people like my sister who has mental disability um, but needs a lot of uh, accommodations in order to access treatment. And then lastly, again, with the theme of the people, the people at the margins of the margins, you know, and that to me is the, the immigrant community, the undocumented community, 
or just people who don't even have access to health insurance or services. So these people, you know, there's so many issues when you get into the psychiatric realm, but they're for a lot of people, they can't even get in. They can't even get in to access services. So we have a big barrier with that as well. And I want to talk more about that. I mean, that, wow, I mean, that is so much to take in, but it is right on target. It is right on target. Right now, though, we're going to go to break. We'll be right back after this to talk more about mental health issues. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at Voice America. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. For those in leadership positions with corporations, governments, nonprofits, and educational institutions, please pay attention. Are you aware that 10 to 15% of your potential clients are unable to use your websites properly? At AudioEye, an advanced technology has been created that eliminates accessibility issues and levels the playing field for all. Make the Internet a meaningful resource for millions of more people. Go to AudioEye.com. More accessible, more usable, more people. Call on AudioEye today. Visit audioi.com. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high-test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. If you have a question or comment, call in toll free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking today to Catherine Perez, co-founder of the National Coalition of Latinx with Disabilities, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But, you know, I want to get back to something you were talking about, Catherine, and that is about your sister. Mm -hmm. Kids with disabilities of all types are bullied more than any group in America. And I just want to say how terrible that is. I do a lot of work with young people with disabilities, and it just so happens that kids with intellectual disabilities are really bullied. So if you're listening to this show right now, teacher, parent, or student, you've got to stand up for people. You've got to take a stand. You can't let this go on because I have lost students to suicide. You know, all of this name-calling, and it's hard enough because people with intellectual disabilities have an extremely hard time gaining employment. So I'm really glad you brought that up uh, to talk about. And, and, you know, also when you were saying the ability to get help, I mean, that's terrible. Even veterans mm-hmm. with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's terrible how hard right. it is. Um, and do, what do you suggest for people listening to this show, trying to get help that cannot? Well, you know, access is, is such a difficult issue. 
And, you know, for, for people, this isn't going to cover everyone, but for people who, who have access and the knowledge to, to go online and to check out resources, um, there are a lot of great resources out there. You know, we have NAMI, uh, we have my coalition, um, the, that one of our aims is to provide resources. Um, you know, I, I clerked one summer for Disability Rights California, which is a protection and advocacy agency, and we have those in all of the states. Um, and so you can look up. There's a lot of really great groups out there that plug you into resources. I know um, that, for example, uh, I, like I said, I clerked at Disability Rights California one, one summer when I was in law school, and... You know, I, I was learning new things about about the options that are out there, and it's funny because here I am at a privileged place, and I was a law student, and I told my mom, you know, have you heard of in-home supportive services? There's this thing that might be available to my sister, to Cindy, and you know, my mom was like, yeah, I had heard of that before, but you know, we ne- we didn't really get that many hours, and and me as a law student and just learning about this resource out there. I was able to help my mom um, get in-home supportive service hours for my sister. She ended up getting the maximum amount. So, you know, it really is about about just just gaining the knowledge and the resources. And, you know, in particular for my community, the Latinx community, um, you know, having resources that are that are in your language and then having people who are... Um, who know how to work with diverse cultures. Yeah, and I like what you said. You know, you need to speak up. You need to contact a group. You need to AAPD, AAPD.com. You need to contact someone and say, I need help. Someone is going to reach out and help you from the disability community. You've Mm -hmm. got to speak up. Don't sit back. Don't wait. Don't wait. You've got to speak up. And uh, I can't emphasize that to you enough. In the workplace, as you might guess, uh, Catherine, uh, you know what I do for a living. Yeah. Um, And anyone listening to the show, you know I live with uh, epilepsy, and my living is finding competitive employment for people with disabilities. May I say, people with mental health issues no longer want anyone to know. I was talking to my friend who's on the board of AAPD, Jennifer Mathis from Bazelon Center, and it is terrible how with, for example, shootings, you know, terrorist activity, different things that have happened, how, uh, or when they talk about gun control, mm-hmm. you know, gun control, and we need that gun control for people with psychiatric disabilities. Yeah. It's like everyone with a mental health issue is going to kill someone. Absolutely. And, 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 and that, so ridiculous. Doesn't, yeah, that doesn't help me get jobs for people. Right. So, I mean, do you see this also, Catherine, when people do get employed or trying to get employed, that this happens to them? You know, I, I've done... Right now, I'm I'm sort of in an academic realm in addition to being an activist, and I've done some research on employment and um, disclosure. Uh, and you know, and lo and behold, there's a lot of articles on people with mental disability, psychiatric disability, and their experiences in employment. And you know, a lot of people choose not even to disclose, um, which becomes really complicated. Although Although a lot of people do qualify under the Americans with Disabilities Act and you know other other laws, employment laws, to receive accommodations, um, you know to to not be discriminated in the hiring or you know or within their workplace um, because of the stigma, because of what you mentioned about the the national narrative around people with psychiatric disabilities, people are afraid to say that. I have a psychiatric disability and I need an accommodation. And and that, you know, that that prevents people from from accessing jobs or from for being success, successful when they're in jobs. And you know, there was a really great study that showed um that identified several issues and one of these is that you know, a lot of times people with psychiatric disabilities 
in the workplace don't disclose. And what happens is, is, is when, they, when they have an issue and they end up with HR, you know, and they're getting, they're getting in trouble for something in the employment place, which really should have been resolved through an accommodation, that's the first instance that, that they're disclosing and asking for, for accommodation um, as opposed to upfront. So, you know, we, we definitely have a lot of work to do within the employment setting um, and, and beyond that, it's what you said, it starts with the national narrative around psychiatric disability. And you know what, Catherine, I hope you know how valuable and extremely important your role is. I mean, what you're doing is so important. Mm-hmm. It re- there aren't a lot of voices. We need your voice. I'm just so proud, number one, that you were selected as a Hearn Award winner, but may I say you really deserved it. Thank you. Uh, we need young leaders like you standing up, you know, making a difference that we can say, hey, talk to Catherine Perez. So I just want to tell you, I'm Thank so you. proud of you and what you are doing. Coming from you, Joyce, that, that I feel so honored. Thank you so much. And, and yes, I, I feel like, you know, I'm a wealth of knowledge. I have a lot of experience, and I kind of feel like this is the, you know, through the AAPD award that I'm able to, to connect now with a lot more people, and I have a platform on which to help a lot more people, and, it, it, you know, it's very exciting, exciting experience. But well, if, you know, if we wait. have time, I'd love to talk more about um, employment and people with psychiatric disabilities. I have a ton of things to say about that. <laughs> well, you know what? You hit my hot button because um, I always tell people I've been doing this for 22 years. This is the heart and soul of what I'll be doing till the day I die because to think that 70% of Americans with disabilities are not even counted in the workforce is shameful. And then to say what people with mental health issues are dealing with is just tragic and horrible. So, yes, feel free to talk about employment. That is my favorite subject, so go right ahead. I thought so, which is why I prepared. (laughs) (laughs) So there's uh, this other really great study uh, there's a lot of great studies out there, you know, and they're talking to, um, you know, I, I find two kinds of studies. Either they're talking to the HR people who are hiring, so on the employment end, or they talk about, or they talk to uh, people with psychiatric disabilities and their perceptions and experiences of employment. So on the HR end, um, you know, they've done these these sort of like hypothetical ap- applicants, right? So they the study gives, you know these paragraphs of, you know, here's two different applicants and this is their, you know, they're otherwise, you know, similarly qualified, but, you know, one, one they'll give, you know, mild depression, for example. And what, what we find in these studies is that the HR representatives are, are marking uh, the people with psychiatric disability who are otherwise qualified as less suitable uh, to be hired um, than their counterparts. And, you know, and, and like I said, that the one study that I'm, I'm talking about right now, it was just mild depression. So, I mean, you can imagine for people who have, you know, major depression or, or other, other forms of mental disability like bipolar disorder or, or schizophrenia. And then on the, the perception side, um, again, I, I think I've talked a little bit about this already, um, one big issue within the psychiatric and mental disability community is that a lot of people don't even identify as disabled. So, you know, you may or may not have a diagnosis, um, a psychiatric diagnosis, but even if you do, a lot of people don't say, um, I'm disabled. So they don't think that the Americans with Disability Acts or protections or accommodations apply to them, you know. And there's, there's sort of this, like, worthy, non-worthy narrative or the deserving, undeserving narrative. And I think a lot of people feel like, you know, accommodations and employment for, for physical disabilities to change the physical environment, those are the worthy ones or those are the, those are the deserving accommodations. Whereas a lot of the accommodations that people with psychiatric disabilities need, which are, you know, changes to time schedules, um, you know, longer, 
you know, longer times to accomplish things or, or um, accommodations to, let's say, uh, the side effect of, of a medication and, and, and being able to, to take time out to deal with that, right? So a lot of it is with time. And it, that just happens to be particularly problematic in the society that we live in where, you know, where employers see our nine-to-five job <laughs> and productivity as absolutely valued. And when we try to change the way that we construct time, you know, it, it's, it's very challenging in our society and for employers. But, you know, I'm here to say that, that those kind of accommodations, they are as worthy as, as other kind of accommodations, um, and I think people with psychiatric disabilities and their employers need to, need to understand that. And, you know, I've, I've said this before, but another thing that the, the studies show that people, okay, maybe they do identify as disabled, but they still don't want to ask for accommodations, again, because of the stigma and the fear of violence within the, within the employment setting. So, so there's, there's just a, there's a host of issues. Well, you are so right. For example, the thing you said about not identifying that you have a disability, we see this all the time. We've even had people, you know, they have depression and they'll say to us, well, you know, I don't really have a disability. And I'll say, yes, you do have a disability. And here's where that's bad. With Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act, federal contractors are obligated to have a 7% aspirational goal. If on the voluntary self-disclosure they would uh, check as, yes, I have a disability, not, of course, what the disability is, they actually are going to have an even better chance because companies are right now having a hard time finding people. Right. But not only that, right here with Bender. We'll have these great entry-level job openings, maybe paying fifty dollars or $60,000 a year, uh, but the person doesn't contact us. Why? Well, we don't really have a disability. I even read an article about this. You know, like, I have cancer. I don't have a disability. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. I have diabetes. I don't have a disability. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. I have depression. I don't have a disability. So, you know... You are so right when you say that. Right now, the biggest problem of why people don't ask for an accommodation, as you said, is they'll take a chance of not having an issue where they needed more time, you know, whatever it would be, Mm -hmm. because they are so afraid of the stigma. And then, like I said, and then the first instance, where where they end up disclosing is when they're already at the HR department getting getting punished for something when really you know it it was something that should have been a, a front end conversation about receiving accommodation. Um, so it's it's incredible. It really is. Um, but with a voice like yours, a leader in this country, we can all work to change that. Right? We can Thank work you. as much as possible, at least, to educate people. Absolutely. But, and and but, like I said, it's not I'm sorry for cutting you off. No, go no, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. And and like I said, it's not only educating people with psychiatric mental disabilities, it's educating employers. Oh, and yes. you know, again, like I said before, I went to law school and and the reason why some some listeners might be asking themselves, why does she get a PhD after law school? It's, that's that's ridiculous. I agree. <laughs> but <laughs> when I was in law school, um, you know, I, I was there for three years. I was at UCLA School of Law, and they never offered a disability law course. And that, to me, is incredible, because even the people who are being trained to be enforcers of the law of the Americans with Disabilities Act, of Section 504, as, as you stated, we're not getting trained as attorneys into these laws. Um, so, again, the, the, the knowledge of the law and the knowledge of our protections, you know, it's a process of not only training the, the self-advocates who are going to go out and advocate for themselves, but also training, you know, the, the people in positions of, of power and privilege to, to recognize that we do have legal rights. Yeah, well, I know. And that is sad, but we're glad that you did that. 
But now to the topic I know you'll really want to talk about, yes. which is CNLD, which, of course, we heard about, you know, when you received the award in addition to all this great civil rights work you're doing. Um, so what is CNLD? Tell our listeners what this is. Sure. CNLD is La Coalición Nacional para Latinxes con Discapacidades. Or in English, it's the National Coalition for Latinxes with Disabilities. And we are a new group, less than a year old, but have already been, been shaking a lot of things up. And we are a group of Latinxes with Disabilities, which is in our title, but also I, I do want to recognize that a lot of people identify in different ways, just like within the disability community. Um, so some people identify as Hispanic, Chicano, Chicanx, um, Mexicano, et cetera. Um, so we're inclusive to all people with, you know, with Latinx or other identifications. And our, our mission is, is just, a, you know, a society in which the rights of Latinxes with disabilities are, are upheld and all of our intersecting identities are embraced. And a big part of that, I think a theme through what we've been talking about is identity. And I found, you know, I've, I exist in these, in these two spaces, in the disability community and the Latinx community. And I find my hypothesis is, just from my experience in the Latinx community, that a lot of Latinxes with, um, well, I'm going to say impairments, um, don't necessarily, again, identify with the disability community. And what our group is trying to do is we're trying to build a community and build an identity um, for Latinxes with disabilities um, to feel part of, you know, disability culture, disability rights, and to be part of the important work of disability justice. And Again, like I said, I also exist in the disability spaces, and there, a lot of times there's a lot of critique. You know, I go to conferences and they're saying, you know, disability too white. You know, it's a hashtag, disability studies too white. You know, people are always calling for more diversity. And, you know, what, what our group is doing is we're not talking diversity, we're, we're making it happen. You know, we're, we're moving it forward. And what we want to do is we want to center people of color in the disability rights movement. And I think that that's what we've done. And I, you know, I just kind of want to give a shout out to, you know, I didn't do this alone. I'm a co-founder, but I've done it with an amazing group of individuals across the United States, some who I haven't even met yet because we've just been having uh, these conference calls to put together our coalition. Um, you know, there's people like Michelle Garcia at Access Living, and she started a group called Cambiando Vidas in Chicago. Um, Conchita Hernandez, um, she's also, many of these people, in addition to be part of our coalition, they're founders of other groups, right? So Conchita started uh, METAS, um, which uh, it's an international group that trains um, teachers and students, um, blind students or students who have low vision, um, on how to excel. Rebecca Torres, um, she's also the founder of, of Backbones. Um, Rebecca was paralyzed in a car accident when she was 13, and just through her, her experiences, she started this, her nonprofit that also provides resources. Uh, Lizette Torres, Kristen Salka, Swashika Torres, Jorge Matos, I can go on all day, but, you know, I'm, I'm mentioning these people because, you know, our, our next plans, you know, we're, we're kind of new and we're just getting out there and we're going to uh, grow a bigger community, but, you know, if, if I could just share with you that all the internal stuff that we've done over the last, I think, 10 months um, with the founders, to me, is already incredible because all these people that I mentioned, you know, we're already putting them in, you know, positions of leadership and we're getting their, their, their names out. They're already doing great work on the ground and, you know, and we're, we're highlighting their work and we're, and we're putting them up as leaders within the disability rights movement. And also, you know, it's the coalition part. It's that all of us together, you know, have found each other and we have, you know, these similar goals, which is to build bridges between the Latinx and the disabilities community. So, you know, I've just been so excited to find, to find a community of, of like-minded people. Well, well, that is awesome. And um, how, how can they follow you and follow what you're doing with Latinx? Well, we have, um, and this is, this is my area because I'm outreach, so I'm in charge of uh, the website. Um, so all critiques of the website can go to me at kperez20 at uic.edu. 
and our website is latinxdisabilitycoalition.com. And through our website, you can find links to our Twitter page, to our Instagram, to our Facebook page. Um, I'm really good, especially with Facebook and Twitter, about um, updating resources and current events and plugging in things both in Spanish and English for our community. And, and like I said, our base is really growing. We're getting more followers um, every day. What is your, uh, your uh, Twitter name? Our Twitter name is Disabled Latinx. Yeah, because I follow you. Thank I you. I would suggest you follow her. We're so honored to have I you follow I would suggest us. you follow her. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, now I know how excited you were. What did it mean to you to receive that Hearn Award at the AAPD Gala? Joyce, it was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. It was so overwhelming. I think you, you heard me when I gave my speech. I, I was, you know, choking back the tears. Um, you know, it's, it, it was incredible. I mean, there were, there were so many amazing people there and I, that who have, you know, who are still but working in the disability rights community but have really paved the way for disability rights um, and the project of disability justice like Judy Human and, and Yoshiko Dart. Um, you know, the Honorable Elizabeth Dole was there and um, Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi and Helena Berger, the CEO of APD. Um, you, Joyce Bender, I mean, these, you know, Michael Murray, I can go on and on. <laughs> there were so many incredible people in one room, um, you know, and so just to have all those people, you know, listen to my message and then afterwards, you know, since then, since the awards gala, since I've been awarded, just to be able to connect with all these phenomenal leaders um, and to collaborate, it's, it's very meaningful to me. Well... Now you know why I call that gala the Academy Awards of the Disability Community. Oh, that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and I've called it that for ages, but, and now other people use that term, but you know what? That's because all those pillars, those great leaders are all there in that one room, just what you said. Yes, it was fantastic. Which is just so phenomenal. It really is. So now you have the award. Now what are you going to do with this? Well, the, um, the funding for the award is going to go to our national research um, project for the coalition, and this is sort of uh, the baseline that we're getting um, because we want to represent the needs and we want to represent, you know, what people, you know, what people on grassroots are, what, what, our, content, um, what our constituents want. Um, so we're going to be releasing, there's two phases, a national survey, and then the second part is we're going to do um, over 100 interviews um, with Latinxes with disabilities. And it's twofold. Again, it's going to be asking sort of a needs assessment. What are your needs? You know, what ways have you feel you've been discriminated? Um, but it's also that um, important identification um, part. And so we're also going to be talking to people about how they identify with the disability community and if they're interested in joining, you know, the disability rights community and, and joining our coalition. So, um, this research is not only going to be helpful for the, the coalition in setting up our agenda, but the research is also, um, it's going to fill a gap because, again, from my academic side, um, a lot of people don't do this type of intersectional research, um, looking at the unique needs of, of people with multiple identities, and in this case, it's people with, um, you know, people who have disabilities but who are people of color and in some instances, um, you know, have different citizenship statuses, et cetera. Well, that is wonderful. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely wonderful. Um, and you'll have to keep us up to date on what's going on, Catherine. Will do. Okay. So, Catherine, obviously, look at you. You have so much ambition and drive and <clears throat> compassion for others. You had to have someone that impacted you. So who is your role model? You know, I have, I have so many. I mean, first, I think it's, it's my parents. You know, that's how it starts. Um, you know, for those who are lucky, who, who are lucky like me, who get phenomenal parents. Um, so, you know, my mom and my dad um, first have just inspired me to you know, to work hard and, and to always, you know, 
to, to, to do good and to be good and to have faith in those things. Um, and then also I have a, a whole host of role models because I, I, you know, I went into, um, into law school. I, you know, I'm, I aspired to become an attorney when I actually didn't know very many attorneys, much less attorneys with disabilities. So people like Andy Imperato, who's executive director of AUCD, or Alan Sachs, who's a law professor at USC. You know, Andy has bipolar, and Alan Sachs um, has schizophrenia, and they're both very open and out about their psychiatric disabilities, and they work within, you know, public policy and the legal world. So they really have um, inspired me. I hate to say the word inspire because I'm, you know, I don't mean in an inspiration porn kind of way, but they definitely have inspired me. And then, you know, there's so many Latinas who have just paved the way like Sonia Sotomayor, uh, Justice. Oh. Sonia Sotomayor, you know, she's, she's only the third female justice on the Supreme Court, and she's the first Latina or Latino, first Latinx person. And also I think a little-known fact about her is she also, um, you know, had a disability. She talks about this in her, in her phenomenal book, which people should read. You know, she grew up with diabetes, so, you know, I relate to her in, in a lot of ways and, you know, and aspire to, to do similar things that she's done, and I can go on all day. I, I've worked for um, Congresswoman Linda Sanchez, and, and she has definitely been a role model for me, and other Congresswomen like Hilda Solis, you know, who's, who's from my area in, in California and lo- around Los Angeles area, um, you know, so I, I look up to so many people. And you know Sotomayor, a Supreme Court judge with a disability, I, I, who is also... Latino. I mean, that is just awesome. It is. That is awesome. And she's well, proud, I'm not and surprised she's proud about that. It's, yeah, it's I'm, I'm not surprised you have all those role models. Before I move on, because I know your parents were immigrants from Mexico, mm-hmm. so I have a little quick story to tell you, and that is that I, as I, as you, I don't know if you know, but I've done volunteer work for 15 years now with high school students with disabilities about not just only the world of work, but leadership, embracing their disability, you know, not being ashamed, and how to deal with bullies. So I'm on my way actually later today to Delaware because tomorrow is the graduation of this one class of about 20 kids with disabilities. And the keynote speaker, when I had... One of the classes, every time I say who has been bullied, everyone raises their hand. In his case, he also works part-time at Perkins. Mm -hmm. Here's how he was bullied. He is uh, of Mexican descent. Here's how he was bullied. And he also has a disability. Why don't you go back? You're going to be deported anyway. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. So... You know, that is why when you were saying about intersectionality, wow, there are so many things, aren't there? It's, it, we could have a whole other show on that. And, you know, that, the story you just gave, it's so common. I hear it from a lot, of my, a lot of my friends and family. You know, I think last month or two months ago, someone said that to my mom. Um, and, and just Horrifying. as a correction. Uh, Horrifying. Just, just as a correction, it's actually my grandparents who immigrated from Mexico. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Excuse me. No, that's fine. It's just, um, you know, we've, 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 been, we've come at different times. We've been here. Sometimes, for some people, you know, the border crossed us. So it's, my family's been here for a few generations. Well, um, you know, like my grandfather immigrated here from Italy. And people forget there was a time, everyone's immigrated. This is the thing I don't understand. I mean, this is what I don't understand. Uh, But once again, we have to remember there are so many ways that all of this comes together. So, Catherine, look what you've already done. Oh, my goodness. Like, you went to law school and then Ph.D. and, you know, won this award. And you speak and you do all these things and co-founder of this group. If you had to name one thing, though, what would you say is your greatest accomplishment? Oh, my goodness. That's, that's a difficult question. You know, I, I, <laughs> I will say that when I finally finish this mammoth of a dissertation that I'm writing, that that will definitely be my greatest accomplishment. It will feel like 
I've given birth to something, <laughs> but, um, but I'm not there yet. So, you know, one thing that you didn't mention um, was that I, I also did the Peace Corps in Peru, and, you know, it's been several years since I've been back, and, you know, I'm still processing the experience that I had down there. But, you know, for me, someone who, um, believe it or not, is, is an introvert. Um, yeah, that is hard to believe. <laughs> um, you know, going and living on my own in a in a community, um, and 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 working. I, I I was fortunate to work with with people with disabilities. Um, in particular, my community partner was Segundo Palomino. Um, he was a the leader of the local disability association, and just the work that we did together. Um, you know, we we held the the like the first disability conference in the north of Peru, you know, uh, talking about talking about these issues that are, you know, incredibly stigmatized um, in, in that area. And just, you know, a lot of the things that, that I did in, in Peace Corps, you know, I still, I'm still looking back and, you know, trying to process it all. It was a phenomenal experience, um, not only for what, what I, I think I gave and what I did, but also, um, you know, the, the learning that I did and what I received is was immense. So, first of all, thank you so much for being with us today, Catherine. Thank, thank you, you so Sarah. much. Um, what message would you like to leave with our listeners? I think my message is, is that the, as the disability rights movement progresses, and it is progressing, um, that we want to include diverse populations, and it's that key word, again, that you said a little bit earlier, intersectionality, um, you know, and it's the project of CNLD, which is we want to bring more people of color centered into the disability rights movement, and overall what we've been talking about, which is getting more people to identify with disability as something to be proud of and a project of justice and not something to feel ashamed about. Well, that is a great message, and you know what? We end every show with a quote, and who couldn't? It just has to be today. Former Secretary of Labor, Tom Perez, who said very recently, everyone that works hard and plays by the rules should be able to afford to live the American dream, which is employment. We love you, Tom Perez, and listen, folks, I'll look forward to talking to you next week. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.